Hi everyone, welcome to Bernie Chats. We're going to be starting a new series today that I'm excited to be calling Not So Typical Tourist. Our guest for this episode is Brent Antonson. It was a little bit hard to figure out where to start with Brent. He's an ESL teacher, an adventure traveler, an author, but he likes to be referred to himself as a literary travel master, which I suppose sums it all up nicely. I first met Brent on an airplane, of course, of the dozens of people that I've chatted with and exchanged business cards with on airplanes. I think Brent is the only one that I've remained in contact with and certainly the only one who has become a good friend. Brent has leveraged teaching English as a second language as a method for seeing the world and living in and amongst some of the world's most newsworthy and hard to access regions and cultures. He's visited or lived in places like North Korea, Iraq, Xinjiang, China, Baronish, Russia, Belarus, Estonia, and more. In our first attempts to record this, the conversation moved rapidly from country to country. Ultimately, we decided to focus this recording on Russia and the 2008 book he wrote called Of Russia, A Year Inside. We also discussed his upcoming book with the working title, The Ties That Bind, which is about his travels around the world by train. The audio podcast version is a bit longer because it contains some of our pre and post recording chatter. It's also on the same topics. I hope you enjoy it. I always appreciate your feedback and I'd especially love to receive your comments about this theme of not so typical tourist, or if you have any suggestions for guests, please enter them in the comments or go to my website, berniechats.com and contact me directly through there. Now please like, share, and most importantly, please subscribe. It's a very important part of being able to build this channel. Enjoy the journey, my friends. So welcome everybody. We're here with Brent Antonson, and we're going to talk today about his book of Russia, which he wrote some time ago. Uh, but it's still relevant if you want to get a good snapshot of what Russia was like and what some of the foundational parts of Russia are post-Soviet times. I read it in, in its entirety some time ago, and I just skimmed it a little bit. And at the time, I was quite impressed with your writing, Brent. And when I reread it today, reread parts of it, I thought to myself, wow, this is still really good writing. It's very engaging. Okay. So um, let's talk a little bit about the book and what drove you to write it? What drove you to go to Russia? Before that, do you want to maybe just give us a high-level uh, introduction to yourself and some of those motivations? I was I was raised with traveling, and I, it was sort of in me. I, I was in the Soviet Union in 1974 when I was five years old and barely a recollection of it, and, and ended up traveling a lot as a kid. And then I traveled all of America, all of the, the states uh, when I was 21, driving them. And, uh, and then did Europe in a rush and did, uh, went into Croatia during the war uh, by train, trying to get to Sarajevo just for the, the possibility of it happening. And then I ended up in Zagreb and being, being kicked out. Then I ended up in, in Estonia in a, in a really weird sort of way. I went from thinking that I was going to be living in, in a small town in Wyoming, illegally working uh, with my girlfriend to abruptly ending up in 1994 uh, in, in Estonia, which was the first um, Soviet Republic to declare uh, its independence. And so I was there two and a half years after independence and I did not like it at all. It was, uh, it was in, a, in a very bad state at the time. 
And then I ended up uh, in 1997 taking the Trans-Siberian Railway uh, with my dad and uh, brother um, from Moscow to China uh, through Mongolia and, uh, and then developed a, an entirely different appreciation than I, I had from the experience in Estonia. So that forced me to try and find a way that I could sort of extend the travel, the, the whole experience. And the best way to do that is and was uh, to teach. And so I, I, I got a teaching certificate that was recognized overseas. I leapt at it. I took as many classes and courses as I could to sort of prep myself for the, the unpreparable. And uh, and ended up teaching at a at an institute of law and economics in uh, in Baranesh, uh, Russia, uh, and then later at the state university in the same city. So that was my motivation to get there. There was no attempt at, at trying to write a book. I had done done that for for traveling all of the American states, and writing a book is a is a is a brutal beast to try and tame. Coming from a family of writers, you just got uh, hawks on your shoulder. And every word is weighed and you don't want to offer up um, anything less than something that's palatable to them. And, uh, and so you try and make it your best. There was no attempt to try and write a, a book, but the consequences of, of ending up there and what, how, uh, how it abruptly ended in a, in a very horrible way. My dad just said, you've got to, you've got to write this because it's, it's almost unbelievable. And so then the entire experience and, and, and rebuilt from, um, from just all my emails home and, and, and stuff and the art that I'd done, the pictures I took and the, the, the consequences of the times of Russia being uh, in 2000, 2001, um, you know, having been shortly uh, independent itself and, and lost and losing and finding its way. And all of these students trying to sort of master their own way and, and navigate this unnavigatable flood of, of new information of the internet of foreigners coming in to their cities. Uh, it was an it was an incredible time, and so to capture that, to be able to capture that in, in a book, in word, is now an, a very important thing to look back on in every aspect. Because Russia is now front again front and center in American politics, and and has been that that beast for the 2016 election. And at the time, 2000 2001, you know, the internet was almost non-existent, unrecognizable in its current form. Yeah, it certainly is a good snapshot. And I mean, in the book, you cover a lot of topics like corruption, the education system, the way people do business, uh, or the way they that business is looked upon, which is quite interesting. And I guess those cultural aspects like drinking vodka and all these stereotypes that uh, that come to life for you in, in the book and in your travels. Are there any stories that stand out from the book that you'd like to go into? You can give us a little inkling about Russia at the time, it's almost incomparable to the, the lifestyle that was led then. And it's not led now because I've been back numerous times. I went back and taught again in 2014, 2013, 2014, when the Saatchi Olympics were on. You know, to, to have students, I mean, everybody was vying for my time. I was this new, unique light in, in, a, in sort of a dark world. I had a laptop. But nobody had a laptop in the city. You know, nobody, a personal computer was, was almost non-existent. And they were only usually at the schools. And this is 1997 you're, you're talking, right? 2000, 2001. Even at that time? Okay. Even at that time. Yeah. There were two public places that you could go for the internet. There was a, a, a private enterprise in Fonsvias, which had 10 computers. And most of those were always occupied by, um, by Black students. Students that had come from Africa to get an education uh, and then take it home. Um, right. And in horrible, horrible conditions. The other 10 computers were at the public library. 
the scanner that I was able to access to send my pictures home was at this public place uh, in Formsvias. And so when I would take a class of students, these were all university, fifth and sixth years uh, English students, and bring them to my place, my flat, which was in a Stalinist built period. It was a 1950s building and just a, an incredible setup. And as, as I watch a movie right now for like the 60th time in the background, uh, Brat, B-R-A-T, it means brother in Russian. It was done in, I believe, 1997. And uh, the inside of every building in Russia that you see looks like a fire escape here. It looks like a parkade. Mm -hmm. It looks like a, a stairwell in a parkade without the handrails. It's a phenomenal way to live and to, to adapt to. And I had gotten that in Estonia. But when you purposely immerse yourself in culture and then find out that this is the way that people are living and you're living and you sign a contract for six months and then you extend it for another year and you, you become a part of this cog in the machine. And so things that we don't really do here or that would seem to be things like the, um, the opera, the theater, the Philharmonic, these are things that people actually go to. And, and as I write, you know, even, even, you know, hardened criminals go to the opera because it's just something you just, you do. These students, the national poet is, is Pushkin. They know poems by heart. It's like Leonard Cohen songs. What are you gonna, I, what would you recite here that would be comparable to knowing that much about any one Canadian's poetic endeavors, let right. alone a poet or a poet, poet laureate or, or to, to quote, you know, Walt Whitman off the top of your head. But these are things that are ingrained in, in Russian people. And so it's it's a brilliant, you get into their minds and you learn, you know, teaching was not what I wanted to do. It was not, it's not my forte. It was not, I was not completely educated in teaching and education. But to have, have pulled that through all of these countries many times, it's the most viable way to actually get to the grassroots of what a country looks like because the students open their i mean their mm -hmm. ears are open to everything they want to know everything about you and everything about your country and at the same time they'll give you access to their lives to their families they want all of your time they want to expressly take you around and show you everything that they know i had students who some of them were married they had um you know husbands who were in in, in aviation and I get parts of airplanes. I mean, I love, you know, <laughs> that. and they bring, they bring, they bring pictures that you could not possibly have gotten a hold of if you were a spy and they're just dumping these on me. And so to have this as, as, as something students would be, or that people would be willing to open their lives. And I call them students because that's, that's what they were in effect, but you're just entering into people's lives and this is, this, and it unravels in a way that it's in an educated manner. So I've got a couple of questions about that. You said you were perceived as being very special at the time because you were an English teacher in Russia. Were there other teachers in the country that were teaching English from English-speaking countries? There are a lot, were quite a few in Moscow. Having already been to Moscow quite a few times, almost as a luxury, and it's a luxury almost to hate Moscow because it's quite an ugly city. But to know that you want to be out and beyond that and that the people in, in Moscow are generally regarded as well if you were from somewhere in within bc and and looking at vancouver as sort of this this opiate of the masses you know this wander to behold and yet you don't want to go there it's like coming to vancouver and wanting to go to prince george you know as a russian teacher you just want to be immersed somewhere outside where people aren't fake and and the new russian yeah. syndrome was taking off then 
Yeah, it depends. I, th I think we, what we're getting at here is the um, the desire to see the country in its purest form without the international trappings. And... I owned realrussia.com in 2001. Oh, yeah? Nice. Because I was, I, we were expecting to build upon that. Because outside of Moscow is a completely different country yeah. than you would experience in Moscow. So these, these yeah. teachers that would be, even now, that the... the, the the jobs online a lot of them are, are for british and american schools that are teaching in moscow mm -hmm. and i met lots of people who've been to moscow and it scares them i mean they, it's instant homesickness you right. go there you just i want to go home i don't want to <laughs> be here don't tell me that red square is not beautiful it's got to be beautiful it's stunningly beautiful and it's yeah. made so goom is, is the department store that is on the eastern side that flanks the eastern side of red square opposite of the kremlin but I mean, it's Benetton, it's, it's Gap, and everything's oh, like three okay. times the price. Simple. It looks like, you know, the part of West Edmonton Mall is replicated after it, where, you yeah. know, you've got these dome ceilings and uh, and stuff. It's a phenomenal place, but you just, you don't even want to be there. You just feel yeah. out of your element. And it's for new Russians. It's for people who are making, you know, 10 times what I made a month. There's an old joke where a new Russian goes back to the Mercedes dealership and says, I need a new one. And the guy says, well, I just told you that a couple of days ago. What's the matter with it? And he goes, the ashtray's full. The ashtray's full. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then that kind of encapsulates the thinking of, of new Russians. It was, the new, the new rich. The new amount of wealth. The new rich. Nouveau rich yeah. in Russia. So there's a, you have the oligarchs who, 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 when they dismantled the Soviet system, were selling off state ran government things like petroleum yep. or you know public publicly held companies that that uh, went private and and exactly. there was there was no real government bank account to put the money in it went into people's pockets well the oligarchs bought these things that you know cut rate prices because the the russia had no no right. income and the soviet union fell i mean everybody's looking for where the money's coming from let alone the all of the, the republics that were that were fledgling at the time trying yeah. to find their own way and American companies, probably one of the one of the lead companies would have been McDonald's going in and setting up shop in the in they, the country and all the so, former Soviet Union countries. They were all claiming their territory, right? Saying, okay, they're open for business now. Let's go in and solidify our brand while the getting's good. But even now, going to, to McDonald's there, it's not the experience here. It's like going to it's like going to a fine dining restaurant. A fine dining restaurant. Yeah. Um, and people, you know, you set up dates, you go there and people are on, they're dressed in suits and they're going to McDonald's. You're waiting in line. Sometimes it's a block long. Yeah. I remember uh, in the early nineties going to the McDonald's in Hungary in Budapest and I'd never been in a McDonald's with chandeliers. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember, that's the way I remember it anyway. I think it was a converted train station. If I remember right. The burgers, a uh, hamburger in Baronesh. It was an atrocity. It was two halves of it was just it didn't it didn't even resemble a hamburger and yet a mcdonald's is sitting there ordering and you know holding to their policy of you know the lettuce has to be this many days old it has to be this color green you know the pickles have to be this you know x y and z these have to all meet standards that in russia don't exist if you know mm -hmm. you get lettuce you're like <laughs> yeah they do wow. they do customize their restaurants to the different countries for sure their their yeah. menu, their menu rather and the restaurants i gather so veronish Varonish. Sorry, thank you for the pronunciation. Varonish. Where is it in proximity to Moscow? It's an overnight train. Uh, I think it's 13 hours south, uh, southeast. 
Great. It's toward the Urals. It's about uh, another 24-hour train ride to the to the edge of Siberia. So especially at the time, it would have been off the beaten path and not a place where many North Americans or Europe, let's say Western Europeans would have been to. These places that, that I would elect to go to, they still kind of exist. You can still go to places in Siberia. There are places that are, you take the Trans-Siberian and the train doesn't stop. It just goes right by these villages and all there is is power going into them. There's no telephone. There's no, um, mm. you know, there's no cell towers. There's nothing around them. And these people they still might get a newspaper dropped off, you know, weekly or something, but that, you know, the mentality is, is going to be stuck in, in an era that is so far behind them. And these are the places you still want to go and access because, uh, because of their, their uniqueness. And so at the time to go to Baronej was, um, it, it was just an astonishing way to, um, to, to let the country reveal itself in that time. And like right. I said, you're talking about businesses. And, and I said that, um, wrote that, that this is the 21st century Russia where you can buy Pepsi and a Coke machine. You know, there were plywood sellers, guys selling uh, CDs on the street corner, $2, and you could buy everything from Adobe. You could buy all of the windows. You could buy everything. They were all cracked. In fact, uh, when okay. a new window came out or a new Adobe came out, there, there's a, a, a an impetus in Russia. There's a challenge to try and just crack it as fast as you can. Oh, I, I see private student who was a, a programmer and I, and you know he was just telling me that what they do and it, it's just phenomenal i mean this entire culture that's rising beneath us is all done by programmers right it's all held by the anonymous people that are that are at the bottom of what we're doing and they control all of our features everything all the apps that we use everything that they design mm-hmm. are done by these geeks that that have no names and and in russia it's almost a national sport to crack the codes Yes. Uh, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. And so this one being hired or was being interviewed on the phone uh, by a company in Denver that was going to potentially hire him. And so we had about, I don't know, five or six months to get his English up to a a grade where he could, you know, endure a telephone interview and it was successful. So great. So a Russian programmer that I taught ended up in, in Denver. Oh, great. Nice. That's a, that's a success. Uh, feather in your cap. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had quite a few. I had successes and, and failures. The only private student I still have is uh, Alexei, and he's military. Like he's he's mm. flown every single aircraft. He's flown Putin. He's like he's wow. he's, he's top level. Um, wow. Yeah, I've had him for about six years. One thing that was most interesting and pertinent at the time was that my students were between nineteen and twenty five. And 25 is the age in Russia where you had to be married at 25. Otherwise, there was something kind of wrong with you. You know, there's a a societal thing. And the pressure was there. Uh, So the women that vastly outnumbered the men, at the most I ever had was one male in a class. And I had to have 20 20 females. The rest of men go off to the army at 18 for two years. Because they do have conscription there still, right? Yeah, conscription and Chechnya was active. So the, the mm. number of, of wounded men that were on sidewalks begging for change, they were 23, 24 years old. And wow. these, these women are kind of left with this, this very impressive education. They know Shakespeare, you know, far better than I do. Yeah, because they have a, an impetus to learn that. Whereas, you know, if it's not, you know, I could, I could read Shakespeare right now. It's not what I choose to do. 
with my yeah, I, I find it interesting that they would study Shakespeare because I, I don't know if in France, which is my background, if they study Shakespeare or if they or if they focus on Moliere, knowing the French. Well, this wasn't part of the curriculum, but the sixth year, you know, university, they've already done, you know, high school. English. And they've already they've already studied the heck out of Pushkin and different different authors. They have. And the thing is, is that in Voronezh, if, if we use something like Prince George as a, some way to visualize Vancouver being the Moscow, that's where the money is. And so for them to, to, to get out of Voronezh is one thing. And then for them to, to use their English, the odds were against them, mm -hmm. severely against them to ever use their, their language skills in English in, in that city. And mm -hmm. then to either get out and I've got I'm, and I've got some some amazing students who made it to New York City and they're you know designers and stuff like that and and I'm very impressed with uh, some of the the lesser students who just did so much marvelous stuff with their the power that they had in their English so your students it was uh, a real advantage for them to learn English at the time especially um, was that their motivation a lot of times was to leave Russia or were, were they there to learn English so that they could broaden their opportunities within Russia or you, if, if you understand that at the time you know seven let's say I've got the number in the book but 75 percent of the the internet was in English at the time having taught in other places English is such a valuable asset to have you don't need to have Shakespearean skills to you know work your tongue but to be able to to be an interpreter which um, I guess is probably the most fundamental way that you would be able to use your your language skills they taunt their grades that they get on on TOEFL and IELTS are the two major uh, international tests that you take to qualify for an English score to get into a, a university in an English-speaking country so to have uh, a high IELTS score or, or TOEFL score is something that you know is Facebook worthy um, at the time Facebook wasn't out but it was something that people are Proud of. There must be an equivalent for for you know my my talents in Russian. Somebody would say, oh, you're you're four point two out of ten or something or a three point whatever. But looking back on it, the English is such a valuable score. It's the only thing you have to put on your CV on your resume is, is mm -hmm. your, your IELTS score or your TOEFL that just gives you uh, the abilities. But then again, there was an Italian professor that she it was her dream to work in in Russia. She didn't speak a word of English. Even hello was a was a foreign thing to her. And we were mm -hmm. the only two uh, foreign teachers there. There was no real capacity to learn English. She wasn't able to learn it. And all the time that we that we were there, she developed her Russian skills. We both had French as a second language, which was our, our way to communicate. She knew the value of English. And coming from Italy, how could you not? Her her love and, and mine as well was to, to go to Russia and to, to immerse ourselves in, in another culture. It mm -hmm. wasn't to find it within ourselves, and her her calling wasn't to learn English. So, Brent, um, the book is is sectioned off into four chapters, if you will: Canadian summer, a Russian autumn, a Russian winter, a Russian spring, and a Canadian summer. So, it's actually five. Can you delve into each one of those a little bit, and just maybe explain why you why you sectioned it off that way? Well, I found I found the the, the position in the summer. 2000 was not a, a, a great year for the internet as, as far as you could find anything out about foreign places, especially deep inside countries. I don't know what even existed at the time. America Online was out then. You know, it was MySpace. Right. There was no communication with these places. I found this um, that position and of course it started in, in 
September. Um, and I went there and said I was going to teach until the new year. But they were sectioned off that way because uh, a Russian winter is something to be, you know, to behold. It's like a Winnipeg winter here. It's up to in Russia and it's Dr. Zhivago, it's Pasternak. It's a, it's a whole sort of revolution of thought that comes with a Russian winter. And I, you know, I went through it in Estonia, which I hated. It was minus 20 every day and everything's gray. The people are gray. The buses are gray. The buildings are gray. Everything is, the snow's gray. And the um, heating, the heating, I gather, is not like in Canada. It is not. It is not. <laughs> it's, it's old radiators. They still, to this day, um, shut off the hot water for six months a year, depending mm. on where you are in the country. But they shut off the hot water. Uh, for six months a year, room. they shut off the hot water. For six months a year. And so you're doing hot water on the stove for to have a bath. Huh. Yeah. What's, the, what's the reason for that? Is there a lack of water or? No, there was a Soviet era thing about not heating during the, um, or wasting the fuel during the... Uh, I see, they, so it's fuel-based. At one time, the 90% of Russia's oil reserves were being wasted in their inability to refine it. It was very unresourceful. They were just losing it, just, you know, hand over fist. It was one of the reasons why the oligarchs got in there and they, you just hire Shell or Chevron or somebody to come in and just, you know, isolate the problems and isn't russia just a huge producer of petroleum and natural gas i think most of western europe gets his gets its natural gas from russia 23 23 countries down the line in in 2009 mm -hmm. ukraine did not pay its debt to gazprom and so moscow shut off the gas going to ukraine and 23 countries down the line were mm. fed through that and so they all suffered that's something that's almost inconceivable here. It's like the Houston problem uh, that happened during our winter. You know, where you're completely isolated and you're paralyzed because you have no, there's no way you paid your gas bill and yet the country up, up the stream didn't, uh, didn't do it. The prime minister at the time, crazy politics, uh, the, the guy who had the acid, Yanukovych, I believe his name was, his face was burnt with acid. Yes. Yeah. And well, uh, actually it wasn't acid. It was, um, it was a poisoning, so it was more an interior, poisoning. interior poisoning than something that was um, applied locally. Yeah, he was the president, and yeah. the prime minister at the time was Yuchenko, um, right? Timo, Timo, oh, you just Timoshenko, Timo, the woman with the braided hair. Yeah, Be beautiful, and she oh, went right, and and uh, and she solved it on her own. Went to Moscow, and I was actually there. Her motorcade passed by me. Well, I was outside of the, the Kremlin, Timoshenko. She got the gas flowing back to these countries and then was imprisoned for five years uh, for doing that, for violating or for one-upping her boss and going in and uh, solving that problem on her own. But a very spectacular sort of politics that was played out, something that is inconceivable here. The wasting of the resources was, you know, there was so much petroleum that they were just, you know, there, there no care in in the work that you were you know legislated to do i mean if you were using oil there was, there was no motivation under the soviet system it was just your job and everybody had a job they were just depleting all of their resources unresourcefully they were shutting off the heat and and the hot water and the same thing in estonia and it's just an unbearable an unthinkable thing for cities that are in the northern climates to think that now's the time that the hot water goes off and you can't believe that to have a bath you've got to boil four pots of water on the stove unreal eh? yeah when you arrive in russia how was that experience like how were you welcomed i would say if it was a uh, it was a five-star approach a one-star uh, ability 
the, the city <laughs> at the time was a very grimy. I, I remember seeing five kids, like 12 years old, drinking beer in a corner of a building, a back mm. of a building. And it was just an astonishing, complex city. of. If you see a city in Russia, you normally just see all of these huge concrete blocks of apartment buildings. And they're usually mm. five stories or 10 stories. Mm-hmm. And these were done by Khrushchev uh, in the era when everybody had to have a home. So they just built these things everywhere. So I've lived in these five stories and never in a 10 story one, but they, the 10 stories have, have um, elevators, one elevator. It's almost like a housing project in North America. It, it, it's exactly like that, but done on, in such a massive scale that mm-hmm. you have no say. To demolish your home, it's just right. put things up. They bulldoze and, and build. And build. And build and build, and which is the reason that uh, that Moscow has whatever twenty million people now. It's just a replication of further city stuff. I talk about the churches in Russia; these things were not demolished in the in the Stalin era. I mean, Saint Basil's church sits on Red Square. Stalin didn't demolish it. Atheism was, you know, part and parcel of Soviet era, and uh, and yet these things still just they weren't taken down. Did you ever see the movie with? Um, the Trans-Siberian one. Oh, uh, Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. And he, yeah. he and his wife are going, uh, and she accidentally smuggles uh, the Matryoshka dolls. It's phenomenal. And it's the Trans-Siberian Railway. And there's the church scene is just, it's epic because it's representative of, of all the churches in Russia. They weren't demolished in the Stalin era where, where you would think that, you know, you would want to do if that was, if you had the motivation to yeah. keep everybody an atheist, you'd knock down the churches, but they were left standing. And so in Baronej, they, they were refurbished with such a, a love, you know, for rekindling of, of imagination and, you know, religious wonder. They're beautiful. It's always amazed me how somehow art and architecture and beauty seems to survive through these regimes and, and invasions. Like even yeah. apparently, like Hitler, he purposely told his generals to leave Paris basically untouched. He appreciated the architecture and he wanted it to still be a beautiful city. You know, his, his appreciation for art and the whole Nazi looting thing. My dad has written a book called Hitler's Present. Really? And uh, he's been working on it for years, since the 90s. He's done a phenomenal amount of work. It has to do with Boris Yeltsin and, and Gorbachev at the time. Sure. And uh, finding this, this lost treasure that the Nazis had hid. And of course, these sto- stories are coming out like crazy now about lost uh, and found Nazi looting. But the appreciation for art and the, the collection, the amassing, they went to Tibet to, to go and, and, well, rape and pillage, but to take all of these artifacts back and sort of keep them in some, some odd semblance of preserving the past that was. And one of the places that first opened my eyes to the concept of looting in wars and especially Nazi looting was in Avignon. I don't know if you're familiar with Avignon, France. It was the Vatican for, I believe, eight popes, because for some reason the Vatican left, I can't remember the reason, but it left Rome and was located in Avignon, France for eight popes. And so if you, if you go to Avignon, you'll, you'll see this uh, amazing Vatican, like a small Vatican, and you go in and, and you could still see areas where they, they chiseled out murals the Nazis did and took them home as, as uh, memorabilia or as, as uh, artifacts, I guess, right? And these were recovered. To my knowledge, they aren't recovered anyway. 
I know the song from French Immersion, Sur le Pont d'Avignon. Yeah, I'm sure I still have pictures of them in my slideshow from when I traveled uh, in 85. Oh, you got to put those, yeah. digital, digitize those. But yeah, the, the Pont d'Avignon, the song, that, that bridge is there. I think the reason they danced on it is because it was never completed. So it's halfway across the river. And oh, wow. so, so there was no traffic going through it. I have to verify that, but that's my recollection. You know, you've got Red Square and the Kremlin and stuff, and that, it's all mm -hmm. really neat to see as a tourist the first or second time. And the Bolshoi Theater is a block away. And the Arbat, the pedestrian street with dancing bears and the organ grinders with monkeys is a couple mm -hmm. of kilometers away. But mm -hmm. other than that, it's just a massive amount of city after city. And it just grows in these concentric rings. And so mm -hmm. you can say, I live on 30 kilometer road. You know, these are just concentric rings that, that, that grow out from, from cities that are based around a center and that can grow concentrically. Whereas so in Vancouver, we, we don't have that. So most of the cities have those concentric rings. Yes, same in China, same yep. in the Middle East. They just they keep on expanding. And so people- Yeah, I think most cities are built on two principles, the grid system and that circular ring system. I believe it comes from Rome, that concept. But, but yeah. Rome itself, again, is not a tall city. It's not a skyscraper filled city. Right. It grew in concentric rings, but it's also limited. It's got the ocean uh, mm -hmm. on one side. But if you look at something like Winnipeg or Edmonton or Calgary, these places can just continually grow and eat up the, the outer expanses as more people moving into them. And so people, you know, outside Calgary will never, ever go into downtown Calgary. There's no need. I mean, everything is out there in the, the suburbs. Yeah, Calgary's, Calgary's built on a very efficient grid system. And Winnipeg is more of a circular um, system like that. My point is, is that yeah. when you grow in these rings, you you identify yourself by where you live, by the ring road that you're that you find yourself on. You asked about how my my entrance was. You're paraded around. I was interviewed on TV a lot of times because of the novelty of me being in their their city. The institute where I was had satellite schools, so I would go out in these buses with other teachers, and we drop them off at places. And I'd go to another place and go out for a day. When you're first there being welcomed, you, you know, you're absolute treated like royalty. You're meeting mayors. The fire department comes out to see you. They, they mm. take you around in a limousine and show you things that, you know, nobody's ever seen. A friend connected with the ORT in Russia is like the CBC here, the federalized uh, TV station. And yeah. uh, so they had a TV crew in Voronezh looking at the arts and culture that was uh, in the city. Mm -hmm. um, because it's got a great opera and a great Philharmonic and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was interviewed and for three days I went around with this TV crew and I was interviewed. I can't find this interview. It was, it was aired when I was on the train. And so mm. I never had it taped and I can't find, you know, it anywhere on the ORT website or anything, but I had a TV crew and these guys and interviews. Have you thought about contacting them? Now I'm, I'm actually activated to, to do that. And then Good. sitting here staring Good. at it. I was in, in a city called Staraskol and uh, I was taken around all of the quadrants of the city. And then the guys that, through translator um, that I will show you something that no foreigner has ever seen. We went way out, we saw the war memorial, which is always something that you, you know, just passionately have to show an interest in because these flames are always kept lit mm -hmm. despite the petroleum problems. These things are always, always get the gas first. And we drove out and and I was taken to the second largest strip mine in the world. Mm. And it's an inverted Everest. Mm. I mean, you're wow. looking at like a kilometers down at these, these things digging and these 
trucks going up in these huge circles, you know, all hours to get up to the top. Wow. Filled. These are the ones with the massive um, wheels that are, you know, two stories, three stories high. At the time, it was the second largest. But mm. but to but to view something like that is almost like being in an airplane looking. Yeah, massive. You know, massive and a massive project and just a, you know, a phenomenal wonder of how of how things actually function in Russia. And one of the, the neat things was is that Staraspol had this this other city that was 20 kilometers away and they figured that the city would keep growing and, and eventually eat this other city. And so mm. people all moved out to where this other part, uh, but at the time, and I don't know if it's still current, but Russia was the only country to have a negative birth rate. Really? And so, yeah. And so Staraspol didn't grow I think that one of the relevant parts was there was a tram system that was set up uh, and they were taking these little trams up to like 160 kilometers an hour or something. So they, they took out gears to uh, to slow them down. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't recall exactly how it works out in the book, but it, but but the taking out of the gears was a hugely comical thing because they were just speeding back and forth between these, these two cities. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I I was the Canadian and and I had to fight to not be seen as a as an American, which I had to do everywhere that I went because mm. and, and proudly get to do that. Essentially, you're seen as an American, you're seen as a Westerner and and as a North American person. Canadian doesn't doesn't hold anything, you know. The Paul Henderson's goal in Russia versus uh, <laughs> uh, Canada in '72, I think it was. Yeah, '72. There's not a whole lot of, you know, accolades that, that reverberate around the world for Canada, at least at the time in the early beginnings of the internet, to put that into better terms. I would take one class of students and bring them over to my place and get them email addresses. Mm. None of them had email addresses. And they, you know, there'd be a huge thing that I'll make dinner and there'd be like 20 women milling around in my little apartment. And then when we do this, I'd write down their email addresses on the on pieces of paper and I, I'm sure that some of them just chuckled and just threw it away and thought this is never going to be you know a relevant thing whereas I'm mm. sure every single one of them is right now you know horrified at that at that moment that they threw their first email away um, yeah. thinking that would never ever sort of another totally immersed in social media and whatnot absolutely the city at that time was such a I mean it almost looked war-torn in places that the huge you know, blocks of concrete, which the apartment buildings are fashioned in. We're laying, you know, broken around. There's rebar just sticking out of the ground. Manhole covers are missing. But wow. now money is poured in. And at the time, money was pouring in. People wanted to keep their money out of Moscow uh, and put it somewhere. They would stick it into, into banks in, in Ronezh. Why would they want to keep it out of Moscow? More reasons why would you want to keep it into a, a city that, that was away from you, mm. but their own reasons and, and there's their own internal politics which is bizarre like we went i was taken to a vodka factory to you know as, as a guest to, to see everything and for an hour walk around but the president of the company has to show me you know everything and introduce me to all the employees and i get to see the assembly line workers and all this stuff but the, the vodka could not be sold or consumed in the city it was all destined for moscow it was illegal to to have it right i remember reading about that in the book so what yeah. was the rationale for that? Was it because it was owned by, by Moscovites or? I'm, I'm guessing something like okay. that. I'm not, I'm not going to get into exactly how that it all plays out because it was just a, just a law and that was it. 
it was a lot. And so, yeah, the, even the consumption of that vodka, which I did consume in that city, you know, these souvenir bottles that I was given was illegal. So the money was going out of Moscow and going into, into Voronezh. And right across from my apartment was the Russia department store, the State Department store, as it would have been in, in Soviet era. It was three stories of ugliness. It was a sort of horrific mesh of, of food with clothing and, you know, some fishing gear and a guy who worked on jewelry. There was a, a huge board where you could buy, you know, uh, Levi's just to sew into fake jeans and all of this the money. The counterfeit jeans. You just buy all of these little labels and, and put them into your own, you know, in the collar of a shirt or something. And As I recall, in, in Soviet times, American jeans, they were a sought after commodity. So if you brought jeans, you know, behind the Iron Curtain or into Soviet Russia, you could sell them for a pretty penny, right? People would do anything for them. It, yeah, legitimate ones. That, and you're a Westerner. Yeah. But the other thing, when we were there in 1974, there's a story that I recollect because I've actually got these pouches of, of um, a ballpoint pen in 1974 in, in Russia was just a, like a phenomenal advancement of, of, of science when the Russians and, and Americans were in the space race. The, the Americans were trying to design a pen that would work in space that right. would push mm -hmm. the ink and you'd be able to, to write in space. To deal, to deal with zero gravity. To deal with zero gravity, whereas the Russians just use a pencil. Right. Yeah. Simple solution. So, <laughs> so to, to have a ballpoint pen or to have a, you know, a clicky, yeah. a, a clicky, a big pen to give that to somebody was to, to give them the future. And in, in return, we got this pouch full of pins of Soviet pins mm. from that era. So. And, and now they're buying the Fisher pen from the United States which is the one that was developed for NASA. Yeah. <laughs> and funny how it flows back. These Pardon? stories will be lost if they're not told as they are in the book. These stories of snapshots of Russia, of, of these different mm -hmm. countries, prior to, to everything becoming a, a global so a social economy, we're all sitting here in a, in a COVID era where I know that even my most cherished actors or, or, or rock stars are right now sitting at home either, you know, with a mask in their hand you know, and they're, they're essentially just as zoomable as you are. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're probably bored for a lot of their day too. It's a strange phenomenon to find ourselves in. But prior to, to, to the internet taking over the world, these places didn't have access. Moscow was, was still that overnight train ride away. It was not, you could work from, from a, an outside city to the internet. Right. Uh, and pretend that you're in Moscow, whereas I could pretend right now that I'm working in, in, uh, in downtown Vancouver and I'm 30 kilometers from it. One of the passages that I read uh, recently in the book was about starting businesses and how all the businesses at the time had to, they couldn't take loans from banks. They had to take loans from the mafia to start their businesses if they needed financing, which probably most did. There's basically one bank in Russia, Sviedrank. Uh, Northern Bank, it means every 10, 20 meters in Moscow, there's a spare bank, bank machine or a bank. Mm. I mean, the money there is phenomenal. And so there was no ATM when I got there. And then there was an ATM and it said outside, you know, foreign accounts and foreign was spelled wrong, which is, <laughs> you know, it's a word that everybody, you know, tackles at some point in their life. But yeah. there it is, you know, in big, huge letters, foreign spelled wrong, probably chiseled into stone. That's perfect. Uh, but they had a bank machine that worked once for me and then it broke and nobody ever got to use it again. There was the, the bank story where I went down and I was trying to exchange some American cash I had. And the guy at the border with a machine gun, Vladimir, uh, blind in one eye. And he's just, uh, I will give you a better exchange than the bank. And he's guarding the bank. 
So he's sitting in his little right. ladder. He's sitting there with his machine guns clanking as we're getting into his car. And, uh, you know, it's comical. It's, so it's he's, he's working for the bank and he's wanting to do a side deal to do the exchange with you, circumventing the bank because he's going yes. to give you a better rate and he wants the American dollars. And he wants the American dollars. That's something, eh? Oh, it's uh, just phenomenal. Well, the other the quote in the passage that I read, read too in the book is, if you have money, you have big problems. And it's easier just to be poor than have to deal with the mafia on the money. There's a prestige. One woman that I knew, we went to this, I didn't even know that it existed on this, on the main street. Um, and we go into this underground uh, restaurant and a club and she paid $300 US or something for our, our meal. And it wasn't that great. It was just that you were there and you were amongst these, you know, these elite people, most of them from Moscow, most of them, uh, all mafia money, all money that was just flowing. To have money was to be able to show it, you know, to have Levi's, to have that Levi's tag on the back of your thing was to show that you were, that you were in some way connected with something that was beyond other people, beyond the ordinary. You're and, showing your uh, status, showing your status. The poverty and depression shines through in, in Russia. You, you just, once you're there, you just sort of adapt to this disassociation of, of people and, and how they attack life. It's one thing to have people with money, but if they're flaunting it in, the, in an environment where people are struggling, uh, that makes for quite a contrast. It makes for a horrific contrast because yeah. these people were at one time, you know, just as impoverished and... and you know, 10 years earlier, they were maybe 10 years or 10 years or 15 years old. And when the Soviet Union fell and now they're, however, they came upon their, their wealth. Um, you've got to have a Mercedes, you've got to have an Audi, you've got to, in some way, you've got to have a foreign uh, mm -hmm. connection. You know, we, we were sitting there and they're all singing happy birthday, completely wrong in this restaurant. But mm -hmm. to say that is like for us to say, you know, encore at the end of a, you know, a rock concert, you know, encore yelling something that's French. Uncle, yeah, oh, yeah, to have, yeah. A, to have a connection to, with something that, that makes you feel like you're um, outside of the situation that you're in, I guess is probably the best way to put it. The ironic thing about flaunting the, the wealth in that society is that just a few years earlier, they were an egalitarian society or supposed to be an egalitarian society where, where everybody was treated equally and any kind of wealth was frowned upon and looked at with uh, distrust and suspicion. suspicion. Yeah, that's why being able to speak English for my students is to be able to watch movies in English, to be able to, um, now I've got, still got a, a private student now who learned his English through watching you know, American movies and TV. Mm -hmm. the, the phenomenal amount of, of understanding and, and time invested in that to get back what he's capable of. And I've, I've had a, a few astonishing students in the past that have been able to watch movies and pick up on all of these you know all of the cues that we that we would maybe miss that we would look at you know james dean is holding or al pacino and and that you're more affluent the more that you're able to show some side of maybe the american dream as it was to be able to to parse that out to people and and obviously you know these men are coming back from chechnya all you know half of them you know half of their bodies are, are wrecked and they haven't got the education they don't understand english don't speak english and and now they're they're being flooded with um this and and the more the, the students were able to grapple with english then was just a, a show of force a show of will and courage mm. and and affluence mm. and especially in a small town it's intelligence um, i guess and intelligence mm -hmm. 
How far away is that city, Veronish, from Chechnya? Oh, from Chechnya. Yeah, because that's where the war was, and these these young men you're talking about are coming back injured, we're coming back from the war in Chechnya. Well, it was basically due south. Um, yeah, it's right. funny how you measure things by train time and how long it takes to get somewhere. It's, it's a 12-hour trip, a 24-hour trip. Um, I mean, the train system there is basically like the the interstate system in America. I mean, you can get anywhere by train. There, mm -hmm. It's more important than the roads. The research that it took to even do that book and the one that I'm currently writing or finishing, the Trans-Siberian was, was unthinkable. I mean, you're going through marshland, you're going across you know, mm -hmm. lakes that freeze. You're, and so everything was measured by how long it takes to get somewhere by train. Just to frame the train side a little bit, you do write about some train uh, trips in th in this book, but you are also writing, and you've been writing for a number of years, a book that is solely about train travel, which we'll talk about a little later. But some of your adventures in this book on the trains, you describe it very well, and it's uh, it's quite interesting to see the the culture unfold inside the train with people speaking with each other and and having a shot of vodka or two or several etc my favorite place in the world if i had one place to pick a moment that i could pull from from my my memory where i've had probably some of the neatest experiences it would be in the in the vestibule at the end of of a carriage you know smoking and you're 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 there at whatever hour of the day it is and with whomever you're you're sharing that little tiny space and it's cold it's the, the you know it's the temperature it is outside often it's like minus 20 and you're you're there you're smoking you're doing vodka shots or something and there's an immediate friendship. The barriers are taken down between, you know, the, the train carriages. Um, yeah, it kind of equalizes things, doesn't it? Because I've had similar very, experiences in other countries. I've spent uh, about nine months traveling around Eastern, or pardon me, Western Europe, mostly some of Eastern Europe on the train system. And there were all kinds of people I met. It was amazing. I could I have so many stories from, from the train uh, experiences. Well, the Trans-Siberian was, you know, pre-internet days, 1997, you had nine days on, you know, you can lock yourself in your room and try and read and, and pass the time watching Birch and Tiger go by, or you can go to the restaurant car and the contrast is just phenomenal. You just meet people you never, ever meet These mm -hmm. are from the other side of the train, because if, you, if you're a Westerner, you're stuck in the front part of the train, which is Western wagons it even says west germany on the train on the other side of the restaurant car which is halfway you get the russian trains and these things don't have there's no noise protection you're listening the wheels are like right underneath you you mm -hmm. get into some they're actually like shelving and people are just sleeping on shelves it's just a, a warehouse of people on a, mm -hmm. on a on a carriage and and so these people this is how they travel and, and so to say that something is so so far by train is you know it's the categorically the way that you would express how mm. the distance to someone they wouldn't they wouldn't think in kilometers they they think of how far it was in hours by train right so, that, that so you would you say here you would say oh it's a three-hour drive or four-hour drive yeah. to somewhere but in yeah. russia you would say it's a it's a four-hour train ride four-hour train ride i mean they're they're just as as timely and time sensitive uh, in Russia, the trains are far more trustworthy than than the roads are. Do they run on Swiss time, as we say? On Swiss time, on Zulu time, on no. Are they are they precise with their timing? Oh, very very precise. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that right? And there, you, you'll take an express train to Baronesh. You could take mm -hmm. the milk run if you mm -hmm. wanted, but like the Trans Siberian, these it doesn't stop at these little tiny places that have you know you know hundred little huts or town you know, town with you know dirt roads. 
Um, mm -hmm. you, you just sail past these places, but you could go and take the train that would manifest itself in terms of, you know, weeks if mm -hmm. you wanted to. I, I don't think a Westerner would have been allowed in at the time, would have been allowed to do that at the time because it would have given you the permission still wasn't there. Well, I learned, you know, the wrong way about taking pictures. You don't take pictures of, you know, things you're not allowed to. So what um, happened? What happened with that? I'd gotten back from going to St. Petersburg with my boss and I had a phenomenal time and I got back and I had a free Sunday. And so I, I was cleaning my apartment and I found these six rolls of film. And so I just thought, you know, why not just go take these over to the Konica place up the street and, and develop them. And so Russians would just develop they just developed the negatives. In fact, the first time when I was there and I developed my pictures, I just got back the negatives. And I thought, this woman's crazy. Like, what's going on here? I haven't got any pictures. But the Russians will take these strips of negatives and put them on light boards and they'll de decide because of the cost, which ones they'll develop. And mm -hmm. so my quote in there is that the best of Russia is sitting in drawers somewhere, undeveloped. Ah, okay. Um, and so, uh, you know, this conical woman i just tell her develop everything even the, the black ones right because you know just i had the money and you want to see what you took a picture of well i was showing these pictures to the old babushkas that were sitting out back of my little apartment complex knowing that they'd never get to moscow if they'd ever been they'd never get there again and they'd never get to st petersburg uh just the cost is too huge and so i was showing them these pictures but i didn't even know what was in these pictures and uh, to Militia, the police walked around the corner and arrested me and took me over and held me. And, um, and then uh, later that night, I was transported in, uh, to, a, I guess, a precinct. And I was ripped out of a van. It was dark. I was ripped out of my trench coat and thrown down these there's, there's 12 steps, 12 concrete steps. And, uh, and I woke up, I don't even know how much longer later, uh, just I was covered in my own blood and I was uh, paralyzed from the waist down and I was being just beaten savagely beaten by these um by these guys in a cell and then uh, I was but by other up. by other other people that were that were taken prisoner I guess well I mean, yeah people who were in jail for, people that were whatever. in jail yeah um and then um and then I was dragged out by the militia at some point and I uh, was you know interrogated about what each picture was and through my my meager rush and I was trying to explain what you know why I had taken these pictures well I mean all the evidence is there I had taken these liberties because I'd been there for so long I thought that you know I was maybe exempt from these old Soviet rigid rules about taking pictures especially you know on the from the train taking pictures you know the airport taking pictures of everything i could oh you know, okay and and you don't do that because it's a you know i took pictures of beggars there was a woman who you know minus 30 and she's out there all day long with an icon jesus and mary and she's got this little uh, bowl you know and she's just there for kopecks let alone rubles hoping for something in minus 30 and it was something phenomenal to catch some of these beggars that were like our own grandparents maybe surviving on a on a Russian pension, which at the time was just a horrific low amount. Um, so they were collecting bottles or begging on the streets. And these are our own grandparents, you know, as I would shadow it today. And so uh, I took pictures. You're not allowed to take pictures in the market. You can't take mm -hmm. pictures showing what is, you know, almost extreme poverty, but something that I had adapted well to. And so I took pictures of these things 
So these 124 or whatever exposures were you know, some evidence that I was spying that I was. And so I was thrown into the next cell and then the guard just yelled, you know, he's a spy, spion. And oh, okay. so I was beaten. And, and, so so um, were they worried about you doing some kind of espionage, like a spy spy work or or about you telling the world about the underbelly of Russia? Oh, I think it was both of those things. First of all, I was I had been told that the the KGB, that the FSB as it was then, was routinely going through my flat. And oh. I, I was teaching and I I would have noticed something, you know, if these guys were pulling some of the stuff that I've seen in movies where they're going through and just, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I would have noticed something would have been amiss. And so I'd take a hair and I just put it in the door and make sure that it was secure. And I would look half the time that hair was gone you know, mm. when I got back. You know, whatever they had on me at the time, whatever I was, you know, charismatic person who was always out there, always going to the market, always, you know, going to the Philharmonic or absurdly taking the liberty of exposing what is probably the, the cruelest turning point in the post-Soviet era was the, the, the sort of raising up of the extreme poverty into some, some semblance of a lower middle class you know, and here I am just taking pictures in churches, taking pictures of, of wherever you would not have been able to take it in the Soviet era. Yeah, one of my experiences uh, with that kind of concept is coming across from Sweden to eastern Germany by ferry. And I was traveling with a Polish fellow who had escaped from Poland during the Russian invasion in 1982. And he was concerned about how he would be met in East Germany. And he was very nervous when I pulled out my telephoto lens and I started taking pictures of the shoreline. And he said, you know, you can't take pictures of the shoreline. You put that camera away, you know? So yeah, there was a lot of scrutiny and a lot of caution in taking pictures of anything that might've been perceived as outside information that could be used against them. I had the same experience when I was taking pictures of Checkpoint Charlie and the guards started running at me. And I and I took pictures of it. I took pictures of them running at me. Actually, <laughs> luckily they didn't rip out the film out of my camera. They just told me just to stop. So. I've got a phenomenal picture of two Russian policemen coming at and running at me. You know, it's a phenomenal picture, and I couldn't believe that I actually had it. And that was in but Russia, Moscow. It was. What are you doing? Why do you think that you would even be able to do this? Why do you even think that you have the right to do that? I guess it's a an Islamic thing as well as a but a Russian thing. You're capturing somebody's soul. Right. When you do this right now, you can see, you know, bad pictures with the headlines. You can capture a picture with whomever they want to make fun of mm-hmm. caught in, in mid sentence with their eyes closed or with, you know, in some right. goofy thing because of the video. But, but in the days of, of photography, your shots were limited. You were limited to the number of exposures you had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what you were taking pictures of was likely far more sensitive than you would do today with a camera where you just take Mm -hmm. video or you just take i was in north korea for a week so now i had learned my lesson five years prior that when they say don't take pictures you don't take pictures (laughs) they're they're serious about it absolutely so serious about it because absolutely you just have the, the power the authority that they have and, yeah. and for you to, to, to just think that you can just walk in, it's just like walking in and just saying, well, no, I can do heroin here. It's just a complete violation of, of right. the, the sanity. Or, or it's like drinking in a Muslim country, or it's like uh, doing, you know, smoking marijuana in certain countries as well. It's, yeah. you know, just something that's going to land you in jail pretty quickly. Not so much that it's against the law. It's that it's, it's a treasonous act against authority. 
you're willing to just sit there and smoke a joint and take pictures of stuff in, in some external city in Russia. That levels you across the board with what on par with what you're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what is this guy already doing? Well, what did they already have on me? If the FSB was routinely going through my flat, what did they already think that they had on me that I only verified by developing my rules of film? That was the experience that ended everything. You know, I couldn't walk. I was locking my knees. Mm-hmm. There's no sensation. My, my feet didn't work. It took a year for this to heal itself. You know, I'm still, I'm to this day, I've got massive um, arthritis in my, my wrist because they were lifting me up from underneath my rib cage, their hands up and lifting me up against the wall and then just dropping me hmm. like six, eight feet in the air and just dropping me, which for some reason was, I guess, the, the way that they just enjoyed, you know, hurting yeah. people. It was attempted murder. It was, it was absolutely, there was, this was just a, a long, torturous route to a, to a certain death. And hmm. the consequences of what I'm still staggering with today. And this is 19 years on. And and how did that come to an end? Well, I had to get an exit visa. When I was teaching in Ulyanovsk, the Russian law changed so that if a foreigner was hired, 60% of their wages were garnished for the first six months. I was not a foreigner. In all of the months that it took me to get my, my Russian visa, um, I wasn't told that, that I was going to be only making $9 an hour. And so when I asked just for my papers for my own self from the woman who ran the school, her son was quote unquote vice president or whatever. He gave me copies of my papers. She had not submitted them. Mm. She was not paying the government what she was supposed to. And so I needed a lawyer. How do you get a lawyer in Russia? Like, how do you lawyer yourself up so you've got any leverage? And so Marina hooks me up with it. One of her students is a lawyer, more than happy. Then wow. they give me free lawyer advice in Russia. Oh, that's great. And so we trumped her. And that's how I ended up getting the flight to Budapest and to Paris. That was mm. the extent of what she could afford. But, wow. you know, we had to hold her accountable. She just lied right through her teeth. So how did you manage to leave their uh, confinement? Oh, the next morning, my, my money was gone. But I was um, everybody else was taken on one side of the wall. And I was taken on the other, I guess, because I was a Westerner. But then just given... My, my stuff was just sitting there uh, in this other room, my clothes, because I was just left in my underwear in these cells. And then just had to pull myself up these freaking 12 stairs I'd been throwing down and then pulled myself across this dusty precinct lot, trying to flag down cars, even know where I was in the city. And I just knew where Garcia department store. And then everything qu- quickly unraveled. I mean, all of my little secrets, living with a student and... Uh, um, you know, the reason I ended up living with a student was because she attempted suicide. And, uh, uh, you know, it was a, the only last option. And in Russia, you can live with a student without, you know, mm-hmm. hanging yourself socially. Um, and, and then the, the whole school, just what the hell is going on? I mean, the, the head of security there, I mean, these are all ex-military guys, right? These are hardcore. There's no, there's no goofing around. These guys just Kalashnikov is like, you know, a pen to them. These are tools that they use. So they, they went down and, and asked, uh, you know, what had happened to me, why I was there, what did, you know, and there was no record of me being there. Oh, I, I see. So the school I, went to went to the precinct in your defense to find out why they, they treated you that way. And yeah. there was no there was no record. Everything had vanished. Everything had vanished. I'd never been there. Interesting. Phenomenally interesting because now there'd be digital footprints everywhere, but I gather your photography did not leave the building with you 
no, I did. I even had my um some of my ne- negatives. I didn't really, know, but yeah. How did you? How did you manage? Why pictures. would why would they leave that with you? I, because I I developed them, and and my story would only lead me back to my own apartment, as I can figure it. You know, where were my pictures if I didn't develop them, and there was no reason for me ever of ever being been there? Then mm. what happened? So, so do you still I, have the do you still have the photos today? Yeah, you do. I got to see those. But yeah, I've got most of them, but some of them are missing. There are obvious ones because I was sitting there holding on to the counter, you know, and being asked about every single question. Who is this? What is this? Where was this? Because mm-hmm. how many people from Vancouver get to say West Edmonton Mall? You know, yeah. and then there I am. I'm, I'm at the Aurora ship in, in St. Petersburg. I'm in, you know, St. Peter's Square. I'm in the Hermitage. I the, walked the Hermitage alone you know, almost mm-hmm. by accident, just because mm-hmm. the, the people I knew knew the security and they said, it's closed. They said, hey, you know, let this Canadian in. And it's like, I walked the entire Hermitage uh, alone taking mm-hmm. pictures. Those pictures were in there and then I've got those pictures. I see, I see. So, you know, you know we have to do someday. Who, 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 who gets to walk the Hermitage alone? And you know, who's at the PE all to himself? Plus you went to the, you went to the Duma too, right? Went to the Duma, yeah, and I were there photos uh, of that there too. Yes. Wow. Jidanovsky, who who's ultra right, just a fanatic, sort of maniacal, um, diabolical, third in line for after Putin for presidency, but he's held on since I was uh, in Estonia, and he's just a, a crazy guy. And yeah, it was my connection, and I was in the Duma. And you had a picture with him. I know, not with him. But I got pictures of him. Like, do you want to tell us about that experience as well? Just connections through through students, and one one student's husband uh, worked in Moscow for Vladimir Zhirinovsky, uh, who's the LDPR, the Liberal Democratic Party. I guess mm-hmm. not that it really matters. Not that it would be democratic. So when I was in Moscow, um, you know, you you get wanted, you get taken down, right down almost to your underwear. Everything's taken off, all your jewelry's taken off, and you're just like, you know absolutely not allowed within this building without for security check and so then up to um whatever floor it was and into this this incredible you know the party of the LDPR and and Jirinovsky's there's a thousand pictures of him you know kissing babies and, and hugging people and smiling uh with all these insane thoughts about taking back uh, the Soviet Union and taking back the Baltics and and mm. you know the Russia needs these resources and we invested so much money in these countries and our, our fleets were there and we put in, uh, you know, ports and, and all this infrastructure. And then all of a sudden the, the Soviet Union collapses and, and he was probably one of the least happy people about it. And so he's been trying to get into power to, um, to reestablish whatever he could rebuild from the Soviet Union, which is why the NATO expansion to the Baltics was such a powerful thing and why Belarus, which is the country that, is at the bottom of the three Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are each independently and in their own sense, un-Russian. They have their own histories. They're, they've only been colonized by other people. Poor Estonia is there and then the Swedes come and then they free themselves. Then the Danes come and then they free themselves. You know, then the Germans come and then they free themselves and then the Russians come. And, and so uh, Hitler had, had taken over um, the Baltics and, and gave them to Russia. That's how they ended up in that sad state. But Belarusian, Belarus is still to this day as Soviet as it can be. It is the last bastion of Soviet 
of the Soviet mm. Empire, Lukashenko, the president, has been in power since like 1994. And so he's maintained his power. He tore up the constitution. It is the only dictatorship in the West. It's the North Korea of Europe. His ministers and him can't fly into Europe. I mean, they can be forbidden to attend, you know, whatever. It was the Ukraine, Belarus, Russia that, that decided amongst themselves, you know, Yeltsin and, and them to end the Soviet Union and to lock Gorbachev in his dacha, you know, back in the day and what, it, what unfolded in those tragic days in the 90s, 91. Why were you meeting with this government official at the Duma? The student's husband, you know, he was in my, my flat for New Year's Eve and it was just a really, you know, neat guy. And so, you know, if you're ever in Moscow, look me up. Well, you look him up. And so when my dad flew into Moscow because he was in Europe, I had a presidential limousine to the airport, the Shedimetyov airport, and uh, to pick up my, my dad. And so my dad came back. Your dad being, at the time, being, an official in the tourism industry yeah, in, for Canada. Tourism Vancouver. Yeah, Tourism um, Vancouver, yeah. And having a, a, you know, a very wide scope of you know, understanding of the world and tourism and generating revenue for this and that, for the, you know, what would essentially become the Olympic Games in Vancouver. Right. And he had this impromptu meeting with these officials in, uh, in Zhidanovsky's office. We're sitting there, and there's a picture of Saddam Hussein right in the corner. And uh, it's just a, in a presidential limousine. I mean, it's just so, yeah, I was sending up my own warning flares. You know, if there's anybody who was curious, just one person following my activities for the government's sake, then yeah, I was, I was leaving breadcrumbs left and right. And, I see. Uh, if somebody is looking at all, all the pieces and not connecting the dots, they could be led to be suspicious. Well, absolutely. Or, or that and, could be led and, to be. And whatever they generated from going through my apartment. Were, were they, if, if that was actually, there was five guys, you know, going through everything that I owned all mm -hmm. the time. As I was mm -hmm. told it was happening. You know, it was it pre the day when you would leave your laptop on. And uh, I mean, my laptop was in my apartment the whole time. Mm -hmm. but I didn't take it to school. You couldn't leave the camera on. That wasn't an option in those days to record your entire day. But if there was, you know, five or six guys who were doing some of the movies of, of East Germany, where they just go in and just, you know, the guy's gone and the entire thing's filled with microphones and, and little cameras and stuff. And, and I had no idea, you know, what I was doing that was suspicious or what wasn't. You know, I've just kind of always had an open door policy because I just assumed that I was always under some observation. Well, and there's um, no shortage of suspicion in those times in Russia and Soviet times. It's curious why somebody would want to leave Moscow. It's curious why you wouldn't want to be in a lucrative I mean, if you're a teacher and you wanted to, whatever you, your game was, it was in Moscow. It was, mm -hmm. you would not come to some place and for, for a meager salary mm -hmm. to teach at these places um, for your own, own, own purposes, mm -hmm. which was exactly what I was there to do. It was not to experience Moscow. I didn't want that. I wanted the, the Prince George experience. I wanted the Winnipeg experience and not the Vancouver, not the Montreal or Toronto experience. I wanted the smaller Mm -hmm. um you know the real the, the down to earth the real russia uh, yeah the less gentrified less uh, foreign influenced yep. version version of russia and that's exactly what i got and exactly what i tried to put into the book was it was, it was a snapshot of of what russia was actually like at that sort of fulcrum of turning it around the ussr was a huge place so capturing that moment in time uh less than a decade after its dissolution and then the experience in Estonia only only helped me feel more confident in myself with 
being able to to go, you know, anywhere in Russia. And I could have been anywhere. I could have been, you know, three days by train by from Moscow. And it wouldn't have mattered. I would have been just as as happy, you know, with any place that I had found. And it just happened to be that city and at that time. And so that's that snapshot is such a it's not the, the same city I saw in, in 2009, not the same city I saw in 2013 and 14. So it's a vastly different world. And the people are vastly different. The poor people are vastly different. The rich right. people are vastly different. The city's vastly different. It's almost unrecognizable. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Is there anything that you wish you would have included in the book, but you didn't? Any people or any places or any adventures? I will spill this now that it's 19 years on, but there's one one woman in that book has numerous women that enter, come in out of my life. Young man in a foreign country? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and this sort of, you know, unicorn in the mist. Uh, yeah, there's there's one woman in there that I'm still in contact with who didn't make that book. And it was the only woman that I would have gone back there to stay with forever. So she's not mentioned in the book. It, it, it was a, the heart tugging actual, you know, those pangs of love that would have left me there. And had this jail incident and arrest not occurred, then maybe, um, uh, you know, things would have worked out differently. But it was like a one week turnaround. It was get this guy the hell out of the country. Like just get him out of here. This is bad on all fronts. You know, all all of my charades fell apart. All of these women started coming out of the woodwork and meeting each other. What the hell's going on here? Who are you? And then, well, I'm just, you know, I'm this to him. And I just say, you're the student, you're the teacher. You know, there's all these relationships, just all, I was in no shape to even defend myself. It was just like, yeah. You had dug yourself a bit of a, a bit of a hole in that one, didn't you? Uh, yeah, this guy's yeah. in my flat with machine guns. Just so what the? Who are we? We don't even know who the bad guy is here. But <laughs> get this guy out of here. So yeah, I was just I had to get an exit visa and get extricated from the country, emergency flight home. The whole thing that you hope would never happen, and, mm. and, uh, and it was it was one of the worst experiences I've ever gone through. I'm sure. So the experience of being in Russia was a great experience, but. It didn't end in, in a positive way. Ended in the worst possible way it could have. But what came out of that was a book that, that deserved to be written. And, you know, where every word is weighed and you're, you're judged by your own peers, which are fortified in your head with your own family and of writers. And you just want to create something that actually is a display of, um, is a work. And, and I didn't think that I would extend beyond that book. It had to be put down in the in, in the words, and I realize now that capturing that city in that state was just an amazing time. Awesome! Amazing time well, it's, to... it's a great read. It's uh, of Russia, a year inside. The book is really kind of neat because it was just a series of vignettes. You can almost open the book and just find like half a page or a full page. It's just sort of an encapsulation of what what's going on at the time. That's true. You know, I, I noticed that when I was coming back to it after having read it more attentively before, that you could jump in and just pick up a different section if you if you open a page. Yeah, I would love to to read a book in this format. It's it's still enjoyable for me to just pick up and go, wow, you know, right there is just a snapshot of just what Russia was like then. It's available on Amazon and it's a great read. I encourage everybody to to read it, especially if you have a an interest or or a curiosity about Russia at that time or the Soviet Union, or even if you want some perspective on things that are happening now, there's some, uh, some interesting insights and it's, it's a pleasure to read. So do you, want, do you want to shift gears a little bit now and tell us about the project you're working on now and, and the conclusion of the writing of your book about trains? Because I understand that's coming to a point where it's going to be published soon. Yeah, the working title has been The Ties That Bind and it's a circumnavigation of the world by rail. 
So we took the Trans-Siberian Railway in 1997. I was I had written about that, and we thought that that would be the only train trip that we were going to do. My father and brother and I, and uh, we weren't sure that we could stand, you know, nine days on a train with each other. And then uh, we did Canada east to west, and then we did uh, America from New York to San Francisco, and then we did um, Hong Kong up through Beijing and and into North Korea for a week. And each of these were three years apart, and then. We finally, my brother realized that if we went from Moscow to London, we would have gone around the world by rail, having done Moscow to China earlier. So we went about doing that. And in 2009, did this kind of blocky step back from Moscow through Belarus, uh, Minsk, and through Ukraine and Poland and uh, Germany, France, back to England. And a phenomenal amount of stories that come just from that. And smugglers and counterfeiters and insane things that you know if you stick your nose into other people's lives and inject yourself into into craziness like north korea you just end up finding a wealth of information that lies behind sort of these facades of people that you would never know if you just stuck in your own carriage so you know on the train and some guy's slipping you his 357 underneath the table and you're like what the you know he was handing you a gun Handing me his gun, the mafia guy, yeah. Wow. Proof that he was who he, who he said he was. Like, what the, okay, yeah, that, that's a loaded <laughs> gun. That, yeah, you're who you say you are and probably capable of the stuff that you... Well, I would say from my experiences traveling, that when you go to a country, you have a preconceived idea of it. And every time I've gone to a different country, those preconceived ideas have been totally shattered and I've ended up with a whole different perception. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the deeper that I throw myself into these countries, the more, uh, you know, having motorbikes in Iraq or something, these are sort of the tools of how you end up meeting people that help you with whatever your problems are, you know, with whatever you're doing. You, you end up having students who, who can help you, you end up with shop owners who will, you know, trust you with their shop they leave for a half an hour and you're just sitting there in their store. I mean, they for some reason, you're just this an iconic sort of figure because you're out of your otherworldly to them. And there's no way they're ever escaping the gravity of their own situations. They're never getting out. There are people who will never, you know, mm -hmm. my students in China that I know will never, ever get out of that country, let mm -hmm. alone that city, never get to Beijing or Shanghai or Hong Kong, just never getting there and no real impetus, no trajectory to actually send them on that way, even so, though they're studying English hard. So on your train travels and in the ties that bind your new book. Are you talking about the times off the train as well? Or, oh yeah. Or, or were there many times off the train? The train travel, but I'm still amazed that Minsk, uh, Belarus was probably after Vancouver and maybe Venice, Italy, one of the most incredible cities I've ever seen. Mm. Amazingly beautiful and no advertising. The buildings are just, just buildings. The thing in, in Moscow is to put two story letters up top for saying Sanyo or Sony or whatever, Honda, and just, you know, illuminating them. Massive billboards. Massive billboards. And so Moscow is just a whole halo of light. It's just an ugliness that then you go to, to Minsk and you're just, what the yeah. you know, night and day. The ironic thing was, is there's no border. Like I was sitting up at three o'clock in the morning waiting for the border to come uh, as we left Moscow and you're going overnight train to Minsk, Belarus. And I'm mm -hmm. sitting there waiting for it to happen. Hmm. You pull into Minsk at six o'clock in the morning and you no border. And uh, now, why and, why would that be? Because it, it's not part of the, the Soviet Union anymore, and it, 
It, it is the country that has the largest handshake with the Russian past. Past, but not the present. It's like North Korea relies on China. It has that handshake. It's insalvageable beyond mm. its, its own means. I mean, I in the Soviet Union, Belarus was known for its tractors. Along comes John Deere and Caterpillar and just, you know, crushes their technology, you know. <laughs> Understandably. So a phenomenal amount of train travel, again, caught up in snapshots that are sort of mapped out around the world, places that are right now inaccessible to anyone because of uh, the pandemic. But, you know, in the future, how many people are going to decide to go to North Korea and what's it going to be like? You know, the, the, the fear could be perpetuated forever and wherever they want. So, you know, some of these countries are, are encapsulated at a time that will never exist in the future. Mm-hmm, true. And you capture that in the book, The Ties That Bind. Yeah. And it's been a project to manifest itself into an editable document and chip it down. And three professional editors have hacked away at it so that I could get it down to a, a palatable size. And when do you anticipate that's going to be released? In, in terms of publishing terms, it would be uh, the next, next fall. Uh, you would say a year and a half, but with uh, an acceptable ability to just kindle it when submitted, if accepted, then it could be within six months. Great. I'm looking forward to that read too, Brent. Great. Well, thanks for joining me today. It's been a great chat and um, I hope a lot of people pick up the book of Russia and looking forward to the ties that bind as well. Why don't we uh, sign off with that? Awesome. Thank you very much. Over and out. And that concludes this Bernie Chats. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, like, share, and feel free to comment. Thank you for supporting the channel. I look forward to seeing you on the next Bernie Chats.